Thanks for tuning in to the American Experience Podcast. My name is Amber DeLugash, and I teach a dual credit composition course in Bolivar, Missouri. Seniors in my comp class are wrestling with our coursework through the lens of an essential question this semester. What does it mean to be an American? At one point, a student reflected that stories create connection, and connection creates understanding. Therefore, we decided that in order for us to walk away from this semester with a greater understanding of this question, we had to talk with Americans. We had to hear their stories, and we feel their experiences and insight are valuable, so we wanted to share them with you. As you listen, keep in mind that each discussion is organic and unscripted. Students are gathering around the table, some literal and some figurative, to hear from our guests. You'll receive the full school experience, complete with bells, announcements, and tardiness. Thanks for stepping into our world as we try to step into the worlds of others. Here's another episode of The American Experience. Our seventh guest for the semester was author Shannon Martin. A group of students selected Shannon's debut book, Falling Free, as their nonfiction text for our argumentative research unit. In her book, Shannon offers reflection about her family's journey of leaving what many would dub the American dream to pursue life on the other side of the tracks. My students used her text to help them grapple with the topic of privilege in the United States, and excitement was high when they found out that Shannon had agreed to talk with us via Google Meet. Yes, my name is Shannon Garber, or I'm sorry, that's my maiden name. I'm sorry, I've been Shannon Garber for like 20 years. I am Shannon Martin. I live in Goshen, Indiana, so... Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know the best place to start. Would you guys, do you guys want to hear like, I mean, I feel like those of you who have read this know a lot of the backstory already. Um, Amber, could you just give me a little bit of direction on kind of what you want me to, to focus on on the outset here? Uh, let's let those of you who've read pick. So what do you want to, what do you feel like is most beneficial for those who haven't read the book to hear? Um. Where do you want her to start? Probably what, what was your life like before you moved to Indiana, the yeah. farm, like, before? Yeah, there? sure. Um, yeah, you know, I kind of think of my life now in, in two separate, and sometimes I even say, like, in my old life. Um, <laughs> I, I see things very much now in hindsight as, like, there was this, me and then there was this me especially you know since i've been out of college and kind of married and in that like really adult life of mine so i would go back in time maybe even just at this point maybe like eight years ago so eight years ago my husband and i had been married for i don't know 10 years or close to 10 years and we had a couple of kids. So one of the interesting things for, for my family is that um, all of our kiddos, we have four kids and they all came to into our family through adoption. So that was something that we hadn't necessarily, um, you know, we didn't set out thinking we just wanted to adopt children like some people do. We just wanted a family and that's how our family ended up being built. So, you know, eight years ago we were living out in the country, just 10 miles from here. So we were still in Indiana and we weren't far from where we are now at all in terms of like GPS coordinates. We were, we were just down the road. Um, but our life was just, it looked very, very different then. Um, 
my husband was working in federal politics. He worked for a United States congressman. And so we had lived for a, for a short time out in Washington, D.C. He worked on Capitol Hill. I worked at a very conservative political um, think tank right off of the hill. And then we did move back to Indiana. We bought a home. We started our family. And I think at that point, you could sort of define our life as just very like American dream. I mean, you know, for us, our faith is really important to us. And so, um, you know, we were attending church and we had both been raised in church our whole life. So, so we felt like, you know, we were living life the way we had been taught to live, which was to be, you know, to create a life that was as safe and comfortable and peaceful as possible, especially now that we were parents. You know, now we had these two little tiny kids at the time, and we really believed that that was what we were supposed to do. You know, we were supposed to have these really good jobs. We were supposed to, we lived in a pretty rural area. So kind of the ideal was to live out in the country. Um, you know, a lot of our friends and family were homeschooling and doing things like that. There was sort of this idea of um, just protecting ourselves or, or sort of erecting these barriers around our life to kind of keep the bad stuff out. Um, and, and that's how we lived. You know, we were, we, we had good paying jobs. We had great health insurance. Um, and, and we, we thought that that's kind of the path that we were supposed to be on and the path that we should stay on. And so, yeah, we were, you know, we were surprised along the way to realize that for us, our faith was kind of informing a departure from that track to where we were starting to see that it's not necessarily that we felt like, oh, you know, it's wrong to have money or it's wrong to save money or, you know, it's wrong to live in the country. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But we started to feel like there was a disconnect between the way we were living our life and really the only way we even understood life and the lives of many, many, many people just outside our bubble. And so at that point, you know, over time, and it didn't happen overnight, it was kind of a journey, but we did end up selling that farm and moving to Goshen, um, again, not far away, but just moving to this very, very ordinary, you know, kind of shabby, rundown neighborhood, um, super diverse, and kind of on the on the wrong side of the tracks is where a lot of people would see it as. So it was a really big switch for us at that time. So is um, your city, is it like a big city? It's not a big city. It's, you know, some people, at the time, we thought it was a big city. <laughs> You know, this was this is kind of Goshen when we lived in our previous home out on the farm Goshen was the city where we would do our grocery shopping and go out to eat and go to Target and do those kinds of things so so it was kind of the closest city to us um, but it's probably maybe 40,000 I mean I think it just sort of barely classifies as a city um, and so now it's funny because, you know, it seemed very big and it, it, the public school system here is huge. So my, you know, we've got Robert who's 24 years old and he's out of the house. But then of the three kiddos that we still have at home, my 13 year old and my 12 year old, they are at the middle school this year and they have like, you know, 580 kids in each grade. It's a really big school. Um, 
And so I think that was one of the things that made it feel huge, you know. And it, it's also just a super diverse community. And I think that also kind of signaled to us, especially, you know, eight or 10 years ago, it was like, you know, we came out of a community that was just had no diversity whatsoever. And so the idea that there were people in, in this new city that um, not only did they maybe look different, but they also believed differently in a lot of ways. And that also made it just feel big. You know, it was just kind of more than the actual size of it. It was just the unknown. It was something that we were not super familiar with. And that made it feel uncomfortable to us in a lot of ways. And now we kind of, I mean, Corey and I, we feel like idiots all the time because we, I mean, we, we are obsessed with our city now. We love it. We're super invested and super connected. And now it feels very much like kind of a small town to us because it's familiar and because we love it. And we, you know, we, it's, it's good for our humility to realize like, we're always like, we were kind of scared to live here and we don't know why. Um, but I think that's what happens when, when it's, you know, no matter where we live or how we live, there's always, you know, we're, it's, it's always kind of ordinary to us and it represents kind of this comfort zone. And I think anytime you leave the comfort zone, whatever it is, there can be a little bit of that like initial anxiety and we definitely felt that. So how does your religion change the way you validate your mental health? Okay, ask me that again. <laughs> Um, does your religion change the way you validate your mental health? The way we validate our mental health. I mean, I would say, I don't know if this will, you'll have to let me know if, if I'm not quite thinking of your question the way that you mean it. Okay. We, I would say our faith, like our core Christian faith has not changed. Like we haven't part of our journey has not been like, well, we used to call ourselves Christians and now we don't. Mm -hmm. um, we, would, we would still say and have always said that we are, you know, our faith is in the Christian faith. Now, that, the way we see our faith, in particular, the way we see the world through the lens of our faith now is very, very different. Um, the mental health question is interesting because I just, I actually just released my second book a month ago. Okay. And I'll show it to you. It's right here beside me. I had to run. I had to run and grab this one because I haven't been talking about this one as much lately. Um, but this is my new one. And in this new book that just came out, I actually talked about some mental health stuff a little bit because when we moved to the neighborhood, my husband, as some of you know, he ended up transitioning out of politics and became the chaplain of the county jail. And it didn't take long for us to realize that, you know, he would say he's he's very much in his sweet spot with his career and he loves his work. Um, he hopes that he can do this until he retires. But I started to notice that in ways that he wasn't even aware of, it was kind of starting to take a toll on him. Um, and he's not a verbal processor at all. So I, I felt like he was like taking in a lot of trauma at work every day. And, and even just our neighbors and the, you know, a lot of the people closest to us in our lives are people who have come out of trauma, including our kids. You know, there's just a lot of, a lot of, we're surrounded by a lot of pain and, and heartbreak in a lot of ways. Um, but I felt like he was like soaking it all in all day at work at the jail and then just not putting it anywhere. He was just like, 
you know, he was stuffing it in. And so he ended up starting to see, at my strong urging, started to see a counselor during that time. And then he also ended up starting to take medication for anxiety during that time. And he's super fine with me sharing that with you. Um, We are very interested in destigmatizing mental health because I think we have seen in our past life um, idea that if you're Christian, maybe you need to just pray harder if you're struggling with some mental health issues, or maybe even to take a step further, maybe there's something wrong. Maybe you have sin in your life that you need to get control of, or on and on it goes. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a, there's different levels of how people would see that. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think there was a time that we would have been somewhat uncomfortable with even discussions about mental health because there's there can be this um, this very like we're going to put on appearances that everything is fine, and we we experienced a lot of that in our past church attendance and, and growing up. And I, I don't mean to throw stones at that. I think. I think a lot of us are just raised that way, and and we need somebody to just go first and sort of pave a new stretch of asphalt in that conversation. And so that's what we try to do a little bit. But I can tell you right now, um, so Corey taking meds, I just saw a counselor last week and cried my eyes out, and it was super cleansing. We have two kids in regular counseling right now, two of our little kids. I mean, we are just big, big advocates and believers in, you know, I talk to to my kids all the time about how courageous it is to seek help. And I think, you know, so rather than like, there's something wrong with you and we need to go fix it. I think most of us could benefit from some sort of mental health intervention. Um, And then it does, it takes a lot of courage to seek a path of sort of health or wholeness. So, Again, I don't know that that quite answered your question. You can ask me follow up if you want to. No, that touched on it really well. Okay, so, perfect. So basically what, just to like recap everything that you just said, you're saying that, and I agree with just, you know, I just, I agree with what you said, but basically yeah. you're saying that like in the past and now, um, like churches will say, or like deacons or pastors may say that, um, well, if you have depression, if you have anxiety, maybe you just need to dig deeper. Maybe you don't have the relationship you should have with the Lord. Um, instead of being like, okay, well, yes, rely on the Lord that He will heal that, or you know, but also seek right. out other help. Is that yes? Okay. And I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. I mean, right. you know. I'm really sensitive to the fact that a lot of the people that I received these messages from, whether it was verbally or just sort of by osmosis, you know, it was kind of in the air. You know, I think of my parents and I think they were doing the best that they could. Um, I, I mean, I love my parents. And so I don't, I don't want to ever just kind of throw anybody under the bus or throw, you know, the whole church under the bus or, you know, I just, I think it's a lot more nuanced and complex than that. But I do think we were not very familiar with people who suffered in really visible ways. We had not, are you guys a Christian school? Let me ask that. No. Is this a Christian school or you're at a public school? Public school. 
public school. Okay, that's what I thought, but I just, I thought I should double check. Um, at the point that we started to become surrounded by people who were saying like, well, I am addicted to meth and I love God and I need help and I can't break free from this on my own. We were not used to that level of vulnerability and honesty. And so in so many in so many ways, our neighbors have really changed our life and they've changed our perspective. But I think we started to see when, when we were surrounded by people who were really honest about how they were doing, a lot of those sort of churchy answers, they just didn't work. You know, it, it didn't work to look at somebody really clawing their way out of a meth addiction to say like, well, you know, God works all things for the good of people who love him. I mean, it just, we started to feel some of that certainty sort of crumble through our fingers. And, and we had to, we had to, to, to create or to embrace a new way of seeing the world, which is just really like our brokenness, if you want to call it that, might look different from person to person, but we all have it. And there's something pretty refreshing about being with people who are very honest about how they're struggling and how they're suffering, and it invites us to do the same. So for example, last night, I my youngest kiddo, Silas, he's very funny. I wish he was here and he could just do this for me. You would enjoy him more, probably. <laughs> very entertaining. Um, but he was having a hard night last night and you know, I'm tucking him in, he's 10 years old now. But I told him, you know, and this is what I would believe. I believe God heals, God can heal, but I think sometimes, a lot of times, God heals through counselors and therapists and medication and support groups. And, you know, I think that counts. I think that's, you know, that's, that's health and that's wellness and, and all those good things come from God. And in my opinion. Okay. So how did your perspective on privilege change? Like when you, in your old life versus yeah. your new life, like how did that? Mm -hmm. I think there was, I think in my old life, I, I never recognized my privilege and, and maybe, maybe really, really never. Um, I knew that I was blessed because I had heard that my whole life, but I think I, you know, I interpreted that in a number of different ways. I was raised by a very you know, my dad was a contractor and a bridge builder and, you know, he built homes. He's a blue collar to his core um, guy. And most of my extended family, you know, my mom went back to college and became a nurse when I was in middle school. So for most of my really formative years, I mean, we had very little. Um, we, I'm sure, were below the poverty line and most of the people around us were as well. I lived in this really rural, very small town. I lived out in the country, but you know, really small town, um, Christian, 100% white. I, I was pretty familiar with the ways my own family and the people around us kind of struggled. Um, and, and even though I did, you know, I went to college and I graduated from college and I my parents always really pushed that because they knew how they had struggled. And so they were kind of like, you're going to college whether you want to or not. Um, because they wanted us to, to live a bit, you know, they wanted us to, to have more. They wanted us to, to live differently than they had been able to. 
But I think all of those things caused me to think that, you know, it was sort of this like pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. And so there was this idea that whatever I had, I had it because I had earned it. Um, and I really believe that. And that was very much reinforced it, you know, it through my whole life. So I think it, again, in my new life, one, I was now the mom of kids who were not white. That was a game changer for me. And especially when Robert became a part of our family. And so when, when we adopted Robert, he was 19 years old. He is African-American. Um, and he was in jail and then he was in prison and, you know, he's, he's had a really hard life and he's made some mistakes and, you know, all these things might be true, but I started to see the way, um, I, I started to see the way some people get kind of sucked into these systems around us more quickly and e easily than other people. And especially when Corey started to work at the jail. Um, and, and they're they're just they're very simply and bluntly are some components that are you know correlated with this with race and also with poverty um, and so you know those those started to be the little things as I went along but also you know I live in a neighborhood and my kids go to a school that is primarily Latino um, you know I, there's just something about spending time with people who are different than us. And, you know, when we started to really know and listen to and learn from and then love ultimately people who are, um, have a different color skin, have a different socioeconomic level, a lot of the friends that we've made here in Goshen are very white middle-class people just like we are but they're, they might not be Christians, or maybe they, you know, they used to be kind of part of these evangelical churches and now they've left. Um, a lot of them are kind of progressive or hippie-ish or liberal or whatever the case may be. So for us, it was like this, this onslaught of difference and opinion. Um, and, and I think no matter what our norm is, when we, when we can break through that and listen to and learn from, even if it's just on Twitter, I started really intentionally listening to different voices and reading different books, reading from different perspectives. You know, we're heading into Thanksgiving right now, and I've been working for the past few days on kind of a, a sort of a resource, I guess, in some ways, on how I see Thanksgiving differently. I mean, I think the narrative I was given on what the Thanksgiving story is is kind of bogus, and but I never knew that. I never knew until I listened to people who lived a different experience. And I think the people who taught me, who gave me that narrative, it's all they knew too. So I don't think there was anything super sinister. Um, I don't think anybody sought out to mislead me. I think this is a pretty long history of just missing some important voices in the, in the conversation. So I think as that started to happen and as my circle grew wider, I, I had no choice but to begin to see how my life was. Although I had worked hard, um, I started to see how my life in some ways had set me up for success in ways that other people would never quite have the same opportunity. And that's hard. It's really hard and it's really humbling to begin to, to see that in myself and to see kind of my own um, arrogance or my own 
you know, wanting credit for everything and, and all of these things. Like that can be that can be a pretty difficult season to walk through. It was for me, and I'm still there. I'm still very much learning as I go. Do you believe that everything in this world, from diseases to just you know simple things in life, do you believe everything has a spiritual start? And it's always spiritual. It's always from God. It's something that's something that we just cannot see with our own human eyes. I appreciate the lightheartedness of that question. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Very deep question that I'm probably not prepared to answer, but I I will try. Um, I do. I think I do based on just your short question. I mean, I think, I think my faith would cause me to believe that everything is spiritual. I don't believe, but you know what? And I'll say this, my husband might see that slightly differently than I do. Um, I like to personally believe that like God, I, I like to believe that God is like really in control of even some of the details of my life. And Corey, my husband, is kind of like, I don't think God cares about some of this stuff. Like, I just, and it makes me kind of crazy that he doesn't see things exactly the way I do. But I, you know, I, I think we mostly overlap. But I think some of this is just, you know, personality and, you know, we all have brains and we're allowed to use them. We're allowed to ask questions and we're allowed to have doubts and we don't have to be certain about everything. Um I mean, if, if you're sort of treading into the idea of, like, why does God let terrible things happen? I don't have an awesome answer for that. I think it's, I think that's where I kind of do just have to throw up my hands a little bit and say, you know, this is, this is a level of theology that I'm not equipped to answer for. And at some point, I have to just... Today, during Liberty Talk, we have a I thought about this more, I might have 
some caveats, but I, I think I would see things as, as spiritual, that, that that's kind of the core and the foundation and that God is, is everywhere and he's at work everywhere. So I have, I have thoughts in my mind and I want to form a question, but I don't know what that question is. So, okay. so I'm going to try. Um, but, okay. So we live in a very white town like there's like no diversity at all. Um, and so with that said, I, and I grew up here and I grew up in like a very, I grew up going to church um, in a very like conservative Baptist, like it was weird if you like lifted your hand in the air when you worship, like that kind of, um, that kind of church. And um, now that I've grown up, I've seen like different cultures and different ways of doing things um, and now I see that, and I, and I love my parents, you know, like you said, you don't want to like, but sometimes I like think to myself, well, I wish I would have been raised to see this differently in, in other people's eyes, Yeah. you know, so that I would get it now and be able to like, Sir, does any of this make sense? Do you kind of get where I'm going yeah. a little bit? Okay. <laughs> I'm, so I'm thinking like I what I think you're explaining is is something that it took me until I was 35. So if you want to feel a little bit better, <laughs> I mean, are you guys like 17? 17. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I look back and think like, man. I, I'm tempted to feel like, man, I wasted a lot of my life thinking wrongly about things. But I don't think it's wasted, number one. I don't really think any of this is wasted. And I, and I also think, I think about how much I've grown between even writing my first book and then two years later writing my second book. I mean, I think it's always just a, you're where you're at and then you're, you're going a little bit deeper, hopefully. Um, over time. And so I, I think now I'm kind of excited to think about, you know, I'm 42 now. Um, but it's, it's interesting and, and exciting for me to think like, I wonder what, you know, in two more years from now, like you, you come to these places where you feel like, well, now I know everything and that's pretty cool. And then you realize like, you just, you really don't know everything. There's still more to learn. Um, yeah, I totally understand what you're saying, but I also just would encourage you to you know, to hold on to the good, the good things that you have gained, and then to to feel some freedom, which can be hard to like to keep asking questions, to keep investigating, to keep um, to keep widening your circle in whatever ways you can. I mean, I understand. I grew up probably in a community very similar to the one you guys are in. You guys remind me of my class of 94 <laughs> um, and so there's there's nothing wrong with that and there's nothing to even you know to be regretful about I, but I do think you know the world is in a lot of ways you have access in ways that I did not in 1994 um, I mean I'm just, I'm such a big believer like Follow people on social media who you can learn from. Read books from people who can teach you. I'll show you a book that I'm reading right now, just because it, I, I kind of mentioned my Thanksgiving stuff. Um, ooh, I've been the cover up. My husband just finished this book. It's called Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys. 
and it's really interesting. And it's, you know, this, this idea of, of looking at a structure that is important to us, which would be our faith, but looking at it from, from the perspective of an indigenous person, a Native American, and like, you know, how it's, it's very different. Like the, you know, the, the way this particular man, the author, the way his theology is built out, and he's very smart, um, and I'm not very far into it yet, but I, you know, that's an opportunity that there's a time that I would have felt like, well, I can't read that, or, you know, I can't talk to this person that because I know they don't believe the way I do. I've learned so much from having conversations and having deep, meaningful friendship with people who see things differently than I do. And, and the thing is, is that I have not, you know, I think I was taught that, like, if you talk to somebody who thinks differently than you, they're going to, like, snare you, and then you're going to be in trouble forever. I mean, there was a lot of fear around these things. But what I find is, in a lot of ways, my relationships with people who might be different, they help me kind of reinforce the things that are true. And they also invite me to some freedom of, like, you know, I was, I was in a lot of ways handed my faith and I was handed my political beliefs. And then you get to a place of realizing like, oh, I can, you know, I think of it as like a bouquet of flowers. And here it is and it's so pretty. But you start to see like, well, this one's kind of rotten. This particular <laughs> flower needs to go. Um, but this is still really beautiful and it's still alive and maybe it needs some fresh water. And, you know, we're allowed to do that. And so, yeah, I mean, I, it's not... But I think you guys are really asking the right questions. So do you believe American society is accepting of ignorance? Yes. <laughs> um, you're saying like as a whole? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think we don't know what we don't know. And I think there there's a there's a small, maybe not even small, there's a percentage of people who who know things and choose a path of hate or choose a path of oppression. Um, and that's, that's over here, that's real and it's happening. And I think it's happening more. And I think it's more, um, you know, there's been some permission given in some of those areas. I also think there's this big middle space of people like me, <coughs> excuse me, um, or a lot of the people that I knew or still know of, like you just, you're in this kind of <laughs> microcosm that you, you don't even know that you're in there. I mean, for me, when I, when I grew up around all, you know, people who, for the first 30 years of my life, everybody that I was near looked and lived and believed exactly like I did. And so that was my reality. And so if I knew about you know, if I would have seen Robert, my son now, if I would have seen him then, it's like, you know, an, a six foot four African-American kid with some tattoos and a pretty troubled history, I would have seen him through the lens of what I saw on the nightly news. And that's not a great lens to, to be informed on actual people with actual histories, you know, um, but it wasn't, you, you've got to break through. You've got to break through that because the problem is we, we're being informed about different cultures and things like that, but not necessarily from really trusted voices. Um, 
I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's, I'm, I'm aware all the time of the ignorance that I still have. Um, and, and, you know, I've got to work towards dismantling some of that. Your video broke up. Oh, no. I can't, it's, I lost you. Can you still see me? Yeah, I can yeah. still see you. Okay. I see but a whole bunch of pixels, oh. so <laughs> it's okay. But I just thought I'd let you know. Okay. Yes, go ahead and Okay, so do you think that Christian privilege and like anywhere in America will maybe die down or just completely stop if institutionalized churches would stop focusing on just saving people or, you know, having a structure and would just love, you know, instead of focusing on like you got to do it this way or else you're going to go to hell, or you got to be saved or else you're going to go to hell. Instead of that, do you think that if the world would just focus on loving like you have, do you think Christian privilege as a whole would just die, just not exist? Tell me what you mean. Tell me a little bit more about your phrase, Christian privilege. Like, you know, Christian, uh, like I'm doing the research paper on this stuff, and one thing that I've seen is like there's a lot of prevalent of where... You know, like when we go, you go to court and you have to put your hand on the Bible, you say, you know, the earth, that kind of stuff. Or, you know, you can go anywhere in America and people really won't judge you for doing what you do, you know, worshiping God. And there's everywhere you go in America, there's always going to be, a, you know, a building that's uh, yeah. find Christianity. You know, you don't go to mm -hmm. a town like in our town and there's a Muslim place or there's a different, you know, different religions. But... That being said, do you think if we just would focus and invite everybody, no matter what their religion is, no matter what their beliefs, do you think Christian privilege would just not exist anymore? And can I, I want to piggyback on his question, yeah. kind of the same idea. Like, do you think that if we, mm, never know how to ask questions, but do you think if we really, like, taught scripture, I don't know how to say this. You're doing great. Like, talk about scripture, like just of, like, read it together. Right? I, yeah, I feel like I feel like maybe the church focuses on the part. I don't feel like the church focuses on the character of God that is loving and compassionate and like yeah. God. He hung out with the prostitutes and you know the task tax collectors that cheated people and he hung out with those people and I feel like yeah. and I feel like maybe the church doesn't focus on that and so would you say like along with what Kayla just said would you say that focusing more on no. that part of scripture and you know ministering um, and sharing the gospel with people that you don't agree with would yeah. would further change the mindset even like in the children of the church um, so that they would grow up with a different mindset on diversity. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of fear in the church around love, and so I think I think there are you know these dueling perspectives of um, you know some people focus a lot on the rules or on sort of this legalistic. This is the way to do it. We're the only ones who are right, and we have all the answers. Um, and then there's this other side of, like, we just need to love each other. And I, I, fall, on, I fall on the side of love 
because I, I believe in what you said. You said it well, actually. Like, you know, we can, we can choose to not be afraid of the character of God. Now, you know, the reality is, like, there's some really complicated stuff about the character of God in the Bible, too, especially in the Old Testament that's, like, pretty hard to contend with. Um, but I do think, I just, I, I don't know that people are, I don't know that people are led through fear or, or if they are, it's not usually like, like, I think in some ways my faith was informed through fear. Like I didn't want to go to hell. So I guess I'm going to believe in God, (laughs) you know, but I don't, that, that breaks down eventually. Like eventually you have to be able to investigate or infect your faith structure on a more meaningful level. Um, and I, I just see, I see all the time, all the time, all the time, where I'm trying to think if there's a really good example I can give you. Here's, I don't know that this is the best example, but it's the most recent. Um, I just, this morning, I spent my morning working at a coffee shop in town, and I came home like a half an hour before we did this. But right before I came home, there was a friend of ours who was from the jail, and he came over and sat down beside me. Um, he has no teeth. Um, he has lived a, a very difficult life. I haven't known him for very long. And he's somebody who we, you know, we have people that are constantly kind of coming and going out of our lives. And so he's one of the people who's here right now. Um, he asked me for $5 for cough medicine. Um, I did not give him $5 because, you know, I know enough about his story to feel like, uh, I didn't feel awesome about that, but I bought him a cup of coffee and we talked about him going to an NA meeting later today. And I really encouraged him to go to that. He's really struggling through serious addiction. Um, but I just, you know, I think he is, I think he's, I think he's beloved by God. And I think he loves God. And I think he's caught between a lot of hard things right now. Um, And I believe that that love is what draws people in. And so I didn't give him quite the thing that he was asking for today. but But I know and I believe that he walked away again, um, you know, hugged and I just, I know that he knows that he is loved by us. And I tell him every time I see him, um, and I see him quite a bit lately, but I, I just always walk away from that conversation. And I'm not a super affectionate, like, happy person. But with him in particular, I believe every single time that that's the way forward with him. Like, he's, he's, he's got to get out of some of this isolation and some of this. Like, there's just a lot at play and what's going on in his life. And so I know there are people on the outside looking in or people in the church who might judge him for a whole number of reasons. Um, And they would probably lead with like, he just needs God. Well, I would say he has God. Um, And I I would say that that God is just right there with him through all of this junk and through all of this mess. And so it's, it's important for him to know that there are people in his life who are going to treat him as a fully worthy human, as a person who deserves dignity and who deserves love and who, you know, 
we try to live our life in such a way that the people around us, especially the people who are really struggling, know that there's really nothing they can do to get rid of us. Like they just can't, they can't lose us. We're going to stay with them through relapse. We're going to stay with them through whatever they have going on. And I think that's what Jesus did. You know, when you said earlier, you know, he hung out with prostitutes. He did. But I don't think he saw it like, well, here I am hanging out with prostitutes. I think he saw it like, here I am with humans and they're all kind of a mess. (laughs) Uh, And I don't think he really made distinctions between what kind of messy we are. And here's another quick example. When we moved to Goshen, I wrote about this a little bit in the book, but the elementary school that we sent our three little kids off to was like 75% Latino, but it was also like a failing school. It was a Title I school, like 80% below the poverty line. I mean, it's just a, a struggling place. And so a lot of people in our lives like kind of panicked that we were sending our kids there. Um, and there's this idea like, well, it's a failing school. They don't know what they're doing over there, obviously. And, you know, you're going to ruin your kids' lives and that's not really fair. And, you know, all these things. What, what we were able to see pretty quickly was kids, you know, a school built primarily of kids that do not have English as their first language are not going to be stellar test takers when they are six and eight and 10 years old. And so it's kind of just that peeling peeling the onion, you know, peeling the layers back, like, okay, you look at this failing school, or you look at this prostitute, or you look at this um, person addicted to meth, and stop there, and sort of cast some judgment, or try to fix them, which I haven't figured out how to fix anybody so far, but you can try that, or you can kind of peel back the layers of the onion. And, and you can, in the only way, the only good way to peel an onion is with a lot of love. You know, looking through a lens of compassion and a lens of mercy and a lens of acceptance and a lens of belovedness. That's, that's really the only way to do it. And as we do that, we, we start to see, you know, some of the reasons behind some of this stuff. And I just can't imagine that, that God is holding that against people. Again, I'm not a theologian and I'm not an expert, but I just, I think God is just way bigger than we even imagine him to be. Do you think that privilege is caused by the mindset or ideals of cultures? Yes. Um, I think privilege is, is caused in a hundred or a thousand small and unseen ways. I think privilege is caused by, um, I remember when I was in high school, we, I had this, this, I had a lot of great teachers, but my favorite teacher was, you know, he, he didn't live, he hadn't grown up in our community. He was a white guy. I mean, every teacher in, in the building was white, but he was Catholic, which was like a big deal. You know, in my community, it was like something that, that made him a tiny bit different. So there was probably some little bit of suspicion around him. He may have been a Democrat. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> he, um, I remember him telling us, and, and I went to really, it was a public school, but it was very small. And so he taught like a lot of different classes. But in one of the classes that I had him for, he, he talked to us about like pay attention to who is writing the history books. And I remember him saying, it's always the winner. The winner always writes the book. And so 
And, and I thought it was intriguing, you know, when I was a junior or a senior in high school, but I think about it all the time now. I think our, whether we're talking about um, our faith, you know, who's writing the theology books or who's writing the history books, it tends to be white men, you know, of sort of European, Western um, ideology. And I think those, you know, those are two foundational ways that privilege is, is sort of built in a way that nobody can can really see it being built, but you just, you start to, to take it for granted. Um, and I've even, you know, just within the past year, I kind of mentioned, I've been trying to work really hard to read not only just theology stuff, but like in all genres, read from people of color. And my husband, I've been kind of on him to be reading more women because it, it, it's something that he wasn't aware of. He studied theology in college and it's like, you know, I think women, we're used to reading men um, because that's just the world that we live in. But for Corey, it was kind of like, oh yeah, I guess, I, I guess you're right. I don't ever read female authors. There's this idea of like, well, that's girly stuff. I mean, he's not like that. He wouldn't say it quite like that. But, you know, that's, that's a form of privilege that had been built in him along the way without him having any awareness of it. And so you kind of stop and take a step back and inspect it from a different angle. And that's where, you know, I'll keep coming back to this, but the people that we um, are learning from and being able to learn from people who are even just a little bit different. You know, for me, learning from my teacher who was from my Catholic perspective and lived maybe 20 miles away, like he brought a different perspective that I, that I honestly wasn't hearing anywhere else. And so that's valuable. But I do think, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it happens pretty quietly and it happens over over decades and over centuries to the point that you just, it, it, it kind of blurs into the horizon. You don't see it happening. Do you think that privilege is always a bad thing and it should be like eliminated? Say that last thing again. That yeah. it should always be what? Eliminated. Eliminated? Yeah. Okay. No, I think if I'm being completely honest, I need to be very grateful for my privilege. I don't think it's something that that I have to be ashamed of. Um, I think it's honestly a bit, a, I understand why, why some people kind of come, you know, you kind of wake up to this. And there's the impulse to feel kind of embarrassed. I mean, in a whole lot of ways, I feel a little embarrassed about some of my privilege. But I think, I think acknowledging privilege goes a very, very long way. So I think, I think unchecked privilege should be eliminated. I don't know how to go about doing that. Um, but I think, I think acknowledging privilege and then wielding it very um, intentionally, there's a lot of power in that. And I mean that just an example, and not to use myself as an example for this, because I don't I think I'm just barely starting to understand some of this. But you know, this Thanksgiving thing that I'm putting together right now, I have the understanding of a lot of my privilege um, in ways that probably most of my audience, most of my readers are not quite there. And so I would say the vast majority of my readers are white middle-class women or upper middle-class even. Um, 
And I don't think they're quite where I am. And I think that's okay. But I'm suddenly realizing like, oh, wait, like I, I bear some responsibility here because I have people listening to me who might not be ready to listen to somebody who's way ahead of where I'm at, or they might not quite, you know, on their own, they might not, they might not pick up rescuing the gospel from the Cowboys. That might not be something that they would do. They might not have a lot of people of color in their lives. They might still be a little afraid to talk to people who live their faith or their, their belief system, their, their politics differently. So what I get to do is, is kind of form that bridge. Um, and so I think it's really, it's become really important to me to elevate their voices when I can. Um, here's another example. I had the, and this is something I've never, I haven't written about this anywhere. I haven't talked about it publicly anywhere. So there's a, the mayor of our city approached me about running for city council just a couple of months ago. And, and I'm not running, you know, spoiler alert, I'm not doing it. <laughs> but my, my initial thought was like, do we really need another white person running for city council in this community that is increasingly Latino? Especially my neighborhood, the neighborhood I would be representing, I don't represent that neighborhood. And so what I was able to do, and he gets it, he's fantastic and he gets it, it's complicated to bring the right people to the table. But what I was saying was, I'm not interested in running, and I don't think that's what would serve the neighborhood best, but I'm really interested in helping to find the right person and doing whatever I can to support them in running for city council, because that's what my neighborhood needs, that's what the city needs. So I think there, there's a time for us once we begin to acknowledge privilege. Privilege is something that we have received without asking for it. I mean, I was born very differently, you know, in a very different sort of station in life than my son Robert was. And there's just nothing I can do about that. I don't understand it, but, but I, I have to acknowledge it. Until I can acknowledge it, I can't go to that next step of, um, you know, kind of leveraging my privilege for people who don't have the privilege that I have. Do you think that everybody has some form of privilege? Um, I mean, I, I guess we're all privileged, maybe, to be alive. I I know a lot of people who I would have a very hard time identifying privilege in their lives. Um, so I, I would hesitate to say yes ever. I mean, outside of just being alive. But I know, you know, for for the people who are struggling the most, I don't know that even life itself feels like much of a privilege to them. Sometimes I think it's it's just grueling and it's very hard and it's an uphill climb every single day. Um, so no, I think there are different levels of privilege. You know, I think I think our gender, I think our this color of our skin, I think the the family tree that we were born into. Um, I mean, I think all of these, you know, but, and like somebody kind of touched on already, I mean, being born in a Christian family in America right now offers you some form of privilege. So I think there are a lot of different layers to it, but, but I would not say everybody. Burning questions in the room? Okay. okay. This isn't like a deep question, but I'm just like interested in the details of your book. Like, what are Robert's son's names? 
I just posted a picture of them this morning on Facebook, like one of those time hops came up when they were tiny babies yeah. on my couch. Um, are you allowed to say them? Yeah, I probably won't. Okay. They are, I don't, it's probably not a big deal, but I'm, I just err really on the side of caution yeah. when I'm writing about anybody else's story. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you that they're doing well. They both just got glasses. Oh. They are in the first grade. So, I mean, yeah, they're growing. They're six years old. How old and, is your youngest? Yeah, they're, they're adorable. How old is your youngest? My youngest is 10. Okay. And then yeah. I'm also interested in knowing more about like Haven? Yeah. Um, was she like a foster child? She was an unofficial foster child. So my husband, between politics and the jail chaplaincy, he worked for two years at an alternative high school. Mm-hmm. And that's where we met Haven and that's where we first met Robert. Um, so she came to live with us because she needed a place to live. It wasn't through the state. And, you know, we kind of knew her a little bit. So she she lived with us when she was 16. And then I write in Falling Free about Gracie, who also lived with us a few years ago. Yeah. Um, that's Haven's daughter. Oh. And I don't know that I ever made it, like, super, super clear. I was trying to be a little bit um, vague about some of that just to not connect every dot for the reader. But she is also... So her real name, Haven, is Haven's real name. Gracie is not Gracie's real name, but she is also six years old and in first grade. Um, so yeah, that was, I mean, Haven is still very much a part of our life. She she has a lot of drama circulating her life at all times, and she falls off the grid now and then. Um, Gracie is being raised by Haven's mom right now. So not a lot of stability in Haven's life right now, but you know what? She's somebody who, I mean, I went a few months without, without, without seeing her and she had some stuff going on. Um, but she reemerged as they often do just a month or so ago. And she's kind of back in the picture now. And, you know, we try to be that, like, you know where to find us. And, and when you find us, we are going to welcome you with open arms and we're going to love you. And, we're gonna do whatever we can to um, to just be there for you. And so she's very much a person who falls into that category. She's actually trying to join the Marines right now, which we think is wild um, because she did, has never struck me as the Marine type, but you know, maybe she's gonna surprise us. I don't know. We're rooting for her always. Can I ask one more thing? Do you think that relationships, the relationships with the people in your life are the sole reason that you grow with God the way you are now? Like the- you have, I, I can't see you guys, so I can't read your lips, but say that last thing one more time. Like, Sorry. Do you think your relationships with the people you have right now are the reason that you're as close with God as you are right now? The relationship with God is the reason because of the relationships with others? 100%. 100%. Because I think... Our, our thought on neighboring, and again, I hate to keep plugging my most recent book, but you guys are touching on a lot of the themes of this next book, even more than the themes that are in Falling Free. Um, I, I, our, our take on neighboring is that if it's not a two-way street, like if we're not receiving from the people around us, then we're just basically a really disorganized, poorly run nonprofit group, and we're not interested in, in living our life that way. We're not interested in that. And so 
we're interested in receiving from the people around us whenever we can, and that's what turns us into family. You know, that's what kind of gives us this, this kinship with each other. And when, when we come to a place of kinship with each other, we start really learning from each other. I mean, in so many ways. Do you guys, some of you might remember the story of Lori and Mike? In the first book, they were the strangers that we invited over for dinner for the first time. They, so a minute ago, I talked about Jasper, who I saw at the coffee shop. Lori and Mike's real names are Lisa and Bobby. And when I was writing Falling Free, they had disappeared. I mean, they had relapsed. They were a mess. Well, they came back and they knew where to find us. And they ended up, um, they now live just a block away from me. They are both supervisors at their jobs, like keys to the building. Um, they live in one of two houses that the, the jail ministry rents to people. So they live in one of those houses. They're getting ready to buy the house because they're doing so well. Like that was never part of the plan. Um, they are the ones who just recently started the NA group at, at our church, which is also right here in the neighborhood. I mean, they're, they're just doing fantastic. And we are always aware of the ways they sort of disciple, to use a pretty churchy word, but like the ways they show us who God is and the way they show us, you know, the image of God in maybe slightly different ways. Um, they've just come a really long way. And, and it's important for us to be able to say like a true relationship is not about me helping you. It's about us living our lives together whatever is going to happen. And so, yes, those relationships, that is where I have come to feel the nearness of God in my life more than, more than probably anything else I can think of. <laughs> okay. Uh, technically, that was their bell to leave, but a few okay, are, like, ditching to ask. So I'm going to let those who need to go on to class go, but some have worked right now, and so there's a couple of, like, burning questions that they can still be asked. Okay. Okay. Thank you. 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 Thank to your kids like initially like when they like when Robert like first came into y'all's lives how did you even go about presenting the idea of if you did I mean yeah. from what I've heard from from you and in, in reading the book I would think that you it made me believe that you that's something that you would want him to know yeah and your kids to know so how do you go about that so Robert oh no no I think that would be okay. Oh, no. I'm just here. I'm talking and then I'm hearing myself repeat what I just said. Okay. There, that's better. I don't okay. know. I'm just turning I'm the Chromebook a little bit. I think it's just 
picking it up. <laughs> um, for Robert, it was a little bit different because he he knew some things because the alternative high school where Corey first met him was kind of a Christian-run school. So he, it's not like he was just like, had never heard about God or Jesus before. Um, we are very, and again, I wrote, about, I wrote a whole chapter about this in my next book, but we, we are not real like, well, now we're going to sit down with a Bible study book. Right. And, or like, now we want you to memorize some Bible verses. We are probably what a lot of people would, a lot of people in churches we've been a part of would feel like we are failing miserably at this because we don't, we don't choose to lead with a lot of this stuff. I mean, we believe that like meaningful relationships is where you build the trust that is necessary to have some of those other conversations as they come up. Um, We don't believe that, um, this gets really like churchy quickly, so I don't know if this is helpful, but in the churches we grew up with, in there was this idea of like you ask Jesus into your heart, um, and that's the beginning point. We don't quite see it that way. Like we wouldn't put that language around it. We don't see that talked about in the Bible, and so we have this this idea that there are a lot of people in our lives who are, you know, they're they're on a path with God. They're learning about God. They are growing in their faith. And ultimately, that following after God through life. Like, it's not just like one decision you make when you're four years old, like I did. And like I thought that it might be. Um, so, for us, that in some ways kind of takes the pressure off of this idea of like, well, now we have to get everybody saved. Um, I, I think in, in our life, like our faith is so important to us that it, that it very naturally comes up. It's just a part of the way that we live. Um, I tell people very often, even if I don't have more deep, like, religious conversations with them, I tell people often that I'm praying for them um, just because I am. Like, that's just, that's how I naturally talk, and that's what I believe. Robert asked some, he has asked some really hard questions along the way, like, what do you mean God told you? You know, he's like, like an actual voice told you. Um, So we've had a lot of those conversations with him. I would say he is not, he is not what we would say like walking with God right now. And he hasn't been for a long time. So in a lot of ways he really rejects that. And I think there, it's like peeling the onion. I think there are reasons for that. And I think God can handle that. Um, I think he is, Right now, Robert is in work release, so it's kind of like he's sort of back in jail a little bit. But while he's in work release, he's been coming to our church because it's all very close here. And so that's really special for me. I really like seeing that because I just think for him, it's about being, and for so many people, for me, it's about being in a part of a church or body. I think that's important that will love us and accept us and hug us and embrace us no matter what, no matter what we look like, no matter what we're going through. I think that's the beginning of, you know, sort of that hunger to have more God in your life. And so I'm really grateful that he's there for that. And I think God will use that in some way. Um, You know, with our little kids, we are just trying to do the best we can, just like our parents did. And my hope for them is that, if nothing else, they are growing up to see 
that people who are different from them in any kind of way are not less than them in any kind of way. And, and for me, it was kind of like if you smoked or drank or cussed, like those are like the big, I, and I had to really work to overcome a lot of that. And so my kids now, like most of the people in our life smoke, um, most of them are like tatted up. Um, people drop cuss words in our house. They typically try not to when my kids are around, but it happens. And so I, I hope that my kids are able to see a, a wider and truer picture of the kingdom of God. Because it doesn't just look like, you know, white Christian people who don't smoke. That's not the, a full representation of the kingdom of God. So we try to just let them ask questions. When they have doubts about things, I try to not freak out and panic. I try to just keep breathing and, and trust that God is way bigger than I am and that, you know, God is kind of leading them through some of that. Is that final? I have one. You have one? Go for it, Izzy. <laughs> um, so I'm not actually in this class, but I was encouraged to come like sit and just listen. Oh, um, cool. And so you talking about just the relationships you have with everyone, with like the guy that you had the coffee with and stuff like that. Yeah. Like I've been reading a lot of different books by like Christian authors like that um, and talking about like what pure love really means. And um, I've kind of like started coming to this conclusion that love is entirely about the person that you're encountering with and not about yourself. Um, and the moment mm -hmm. that you make that relationship about yourself is when you lose the aspect of love like as a whole. Yeah. Um, and just from hearing you talk and stuff, it seems like you you have that same kind of mindset towards people of just wanting to love them for who they are and not who you want them to be. But was there yeah. like, a specific moment in your life where... Um, you encountered that and you're like, man, like this is what it really is. Or was it just kind of like an overtime kind of thing? I think a lot of it was overtime. I also can think back to things in my own personal life, like mm -hmm. times where I screwed up pretty badly and I needed, I needed people around me to love me through it yeah. and to not lead with judgment, which is what I feared would happen. And in some cases did happen. So I think, you know, that's where like our own failures can kind of help us along and just really give us compassion and empathy for people who are struggling. I think you said it really well though, that it's at the moment we make it about us, we lose. You know, there's a, I, I write about how we've had to change our ideas of success. So especially for Corey in the jail, like people, he speak, he does, you know, speaking locally at churches and different things. And people are always like, you know, a lot of people are interested in the idea of going into the jail to, you know, these sinners need Jesus or whatever it is. They want to do Bible studies, whatever. But when, when they get out, then they're back to being like dangerous or bad. Um, so Corey's, we're always really trying to work against that. But also people are like, well, but, you know, recidivism, which is like, once you get out of jail, do you come back to jail? And Corey and I just spoke somewhere yesterday together and somebody asked the recidivism question, like, well, how many people come back to jail? Mm -hmm. Or do they ever come back to jail? And Corey was like, quite honestly, most of them come back. Mm -hmm. Because what we know about the criminal justice system is that it's designed that way. Mm -hmm. It's designed to keep people coming back. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. If, if I saw some interest in that topic, 
There's a podcast called Justice in America. It's so good. Okay. So write that down and listen to that. That's a, a tangent. But I, I think, you know, Corey has kind of helped teach me in this that success, we can't tie success to a particular outcome, mm. whatever it is. So we can't tie success to like, did that person decide to follow Jesus? Did that person never come back to jail again? Did that person never use drugs again? I mean, whatever it is, faith, success has to be about our faithfulness. Mm. Like, are we faithful in, in doing the work that we believe we're supposed to be doing, which is to love people and to keep loving them and to not run out of chances? That's what success is. And that's the only way we can move forward because it, it, as soon as we tie success to a particular outcome, then we start to weed out people who might not be successful. Yeah. So I might have looked at Jasper this morning and thought, well, you know, he's not going to be successful for me. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be a good use of my time or my $3 to buy the guy coffee. Yeah. Um, and and we, we end up kind of discarding people. Um, I wanted to give a book recommendation and it, it's, it has a lot of language in it, so just do with that what you will. Don't get me in trouble. <laughs> but it's called Tattoos on the Heart. Okay. It is that book. I read that book when I was back on the farm, and it was like the most, the most pivotal book I have ever read in terms of how, how I started to kind of change my lens mm. in, in the ways I was seeing people. I can't. I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. And so it's written by a guy who's a Jesuit Catholic priest in LA. He runs an organization called Homeboy Industries, okay. where they um, employ people coming out of, not even coming out of, they employ gang members. Um, it's fantastic, you guys. I think you would love it. It's so it's beautifully written, and it 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 really rechanged, you know, sort of reshaped the way I was seeing the world around me at a really pivotal moment, you know, right before we kind of transition into this new life. Yeah. Thank you. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. Thank you I so much. It. Am I allowed to take a picture or no? Yeah. Yes. Should we smile? I wanted to do it earlier when everybody was there, but all I saw was pixels. So thank you guys. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Well, Thanks. That was fine. I could talk for a lot Okay. Big moment. Everything we talked about, pretty much all of it, lines up with the books I've read this semester. It was kind of like, well, because I read it, I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I came in here, and everything was like, talked about again. And I'm like, what you, what you trying to do, Jesus? Like, what you doing? And, dude, it was so good. Oh, what class are you going to? I'm a library worker, 